0: Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. We welcome you into the worship of God today. As we have been worshiping now through the preached word. This is the fifth day of March 2023. This Lord's Day. What a privilege it is to be together. Title of this sermon Knowing God, and I've subtitled it, If God be against us, who can be for us? If God be against us, who can be for us? We want to be happy. I mean, we want to be happy by having our problems in life fixed. Perhaps you came here today, in some small part, desiring to have a problem fixed, to have help with an issue, so that you can be more happy. I do understand that impulse. I have it myself, and there is an element of truth in that impulse. But today, we want to press back on that impulse as what's best for you overall, and restate our group project here in the worship of God today as something different. Our aim, you see, should not be to have all of our problems fixed but to understand what the real problem is, namely, my rebellion against God. And further, we want to answer the question of how a holy God can accompany sinful people without destroying them. Exodus is not primarily a book in the Bible that is about freedom, although freedom is an element of Exodus, to be sure. But instead of just being about freedom from what we perceive constrains us from happiness, it's actually primarily about God getting glory by relating with his people. And in that relationship, reestablishment that was broken at the Garden of Eden, he liberates his people from Egyptian taskmasters. And that's what's going on in Exodus 32, 33, and 34 the center point of which we are at today in Exodus 33. What you'll see in Exodus 33 is God restating our primary problem, not so much in how we get results from him, but rather how it is that he can abide with us when he is holy and we are not. This text, to put it symmetrically, it's about relationship over results, or God's presence with us over his gifts of presence, like packaged gifts, Presence, uh, God over a garden, or fellowship over heaven. Heaven would be hell without God. What makes heaven heavenly is the very presence of God. What makes our worship heavenly is God with us. God is our inheritance. And we will see that today in the danger of the loss of God's presence, verses 1 to 6, and the sweetness of God's presence, verses 7 to 11, and with Moses hoping for, interceding for, mediating for more of God's presence in verses 12 to 23. So briefly, you'll see in the first six verses, not God's presence, what that might look like. And then secondly, you'll see in verses 7 to 11, God's presence with a few. And then in the longer section, verses 12 to 23, you'll see God's presence desired for the many or for all of his people. So there's a danger without a delight in and a desire for God's presence for the many. And that's how you'll hear it preached today, Lord willing. But in summary, this text is about the greater good of God's presence than the stuff that God can provide idolatry is putting anything in the place of God, including the stuff He can provide for us. And that idolatry can come in goods, services, politics, business, family. It can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and ways and means. And often this comes in what we want to see rather than interest in knowing God by what He has said, which will be a a really pivotal part of understanding the density of, of our 23 verses today. So let's read it together now and investigate further. Exodus chapter 33, knowing God, if God be against us, who could be for us? Exodus 33, 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people, For a single moment I should go up among you. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the camp, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight... Is it not in your going with us, so that we are, a, we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord." And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand... And you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto everyone who hears. Now let us consider the first six verses. Let's consider the danger of the loss of God's presence. The danger of the loss of God's presence. I wonder if you'd take this deal that is articulated here. You can go to the beneficial land... But I'm not going to go with you. That's the deal that's proposed in the early part of Exodus 33. In this analogy, this dramatized interaction, not by which God is changing, but by which Moses is changing to better understand the attributes and nature of God. Often we live as though we would take this deal. Here's how it looks. You want God to bless you, to forgive you, to rescue you from hell, to protect you, to provide a spouse or a job or good health for you. But you don't really want God himself. You don't want the demands his presence makes. You don't want to make the changes his presence demands. You don't want holiness. And so this deal looks like a good deal. And I'm not preaching to you. I am talking to myself and to you. Our tendency, my tendency even as I consider you and pray for you and hopefully as you do for me, is to want what God can provide ever so subtly more than God. And you say, well, that's a distinction without a difference. And I think Exodus 33 says it is not. To want God and gain His benefits is one thing. To want His benefits and not God is quite another. You understand, I think. Perhaps an illustration from the Bible will do. Consider the trap of the devil's temptation as recorded in both the fourth chapter of Luke and Matthew in the Gospels. As you think about the trap of the devil's temptation, you might be able to think through how it's talked about and how Deuteronomy is quoted, but there is a point in there where the devil in his attempt to tempt Jesus, in fact, says you can have all this stuff, all of it, just serve me. Just acknowledge me. Just trust me. You can have all that terrain, but none of the name." And what does Jesus do? I mean, Jesus didn't sin like us, right? Jesus as the true and better mediator, the great intercessor. Jesus without sin, he says, no deal. No deal. I don't want the terrain without the name. I don't want the path to gain without pain. I I, I don't want the temple without the cross. I want my people And so Jesus shows us in His answer in the Gospels how we should answer an age-old question. Do we want God or do we want His stuff? We won't face conflict and pain in our faith if our mental arrangement is gifts, not God. We won't face long-suffering with other members in the church if our arrangement is church, not Christ. Some people are happy to relate to the church. Tim Chester writes about this in his commentary on Exodus 33. He says it like this. They want the benefits that the church brings. They want a place to hang out, or they want a group of people who will help them out. Or they even want forgiveness that Christians talk about because they live with guilt and shame. But they do not really want God. They do not want God the Holy One, the consuming fire, the glorious presence, the one who calls sin adultery, the one that is angered by our compromise, the one who insists on the pursuit of holiness. For without holiness, no one will see God. God is heaven and without His presence, all else is nothing. We are nothing without God. If we learn nothing else from the Garden of Eden episode, we ought to learn that. Why are you a Christian, Christian? Is it because of some blessing that you want? That's fine. But God's blessing in the gospel is beyond measure, and God Himself is the blessing. Learn from Moses, who, despite all of his faults, and, and they were many, at this juncture is pursuant of God for God's own sake. And in fact, it's, it's evidenced by the fact he's willing to set in that desert rather than go to the land of the milk, of milk, filled with milk and honey of all these good things and to sit there instead if God won't travel with them. What drama is articulated here in the early parts of Exodus 33? For our sake. For our sake. If you only love God's blessing, then your faith may falter when life gets difficult, and it will. If you only love what God gives, then what will happen if He ever withholds? Think about the lessons of the book of Job, one of the older books in the Bible. Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away still. I will choose to say, blessed be the name. Emphasis on his name and the benefit of him over and above the stuff. Imagine a woman who married a man for his house or his car or his money. You might hear her saying, I prefer it when he's away for work, when he's not around. That's not the covenantal idea of marriage, you know, is it? Instead of that attitude, we are to treat another person in a covenant union for relationship and not, strictly speaking, for stuff or for benefits, even though there are benefits tangibly in a covenant relationship. We should not treat God like that. We should pursue God because knowing God is the blessing. Looking forward to eternity because it will be with God. Mike McKinley asks the question differently. He says, it's worth asking ourselves, if heaven gave me everything, the job, the girl, the guy, the car, the health, the wealth, but Jesus wasn't there, would I be content to be there? Or if heaven gave me nothing except Jesus, would I be satisfied? Deep down, I think often... Our answer is yes and then no. And that's because we still love things. We're still attached to things a little bit too much. And the love of the Lord Jesus far, far too little. Let us not seek the tangible benefits of the church without Christ or gifts without God. Let us come together for worship of God because God has redeemed us and because He's holy and because we want to know more of Him. Stuff doesn't get to the root of our deepest need anyway. We think it will make us happy, but we know if we think about it that it will not. I mean, who among us has not wanted something really bad, gotten that thing, and then still been discontent once you had that thing? You know, that, that car or that significant other or, or, or even, even, heaven forbid, that, that child or whatever it is. That will not fulfill you at your deepest level. It might be beautiful. might even be good. But to have that and to not have God at the center of your life as He is at the center of the universe will not bring lasting peace and joy and goodness. Think about 1 Corinthians 13 11 to 13. It's a passage that's often read at weddings, it's a love passage, but it really isn't set for weddings at all. If you understand it in its context, it's set for the church our giftings and for how to do corporate worship. And in that passage, Paul writes of the partial nature of our knowing in this present evil age. Even as redeemed people, we are to grow in what we know, but we lack perfection in knowing. And he writes it like this, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That really gets at it, doesn't it? it? It talks about faith, hope, and love with the greatest of ease of love. But what is love but that we are known? I mean, if you, if you drill deeper, what I'm trying to get you to consider is even your original premise of, I'm happy if I get what I want, it falls flat just, just based on kind of common logic and experience. You get what you want in life sometimes, and you're still not content. What we need more than anything is the God who makes us content by virtue of him very, His very self, not some, some thing, some stuff, which invariably is idolatry when we want that thing more than we want God. And so 1 Corinthians gets at it when it talks about God. We our being in the very presence of God in our worship, when it talks about how one day we will have been fully known. I mean, that's the level of intimacy that we need, that, that just, we, it just escapes us. I mean, some of us don't think we can get close to intimacy at all, and some of us, even in life, we get closer to intimacy, and yet it still just isn't quite what we want it to be for one reason or another. Why? Because nothing, no relationship in this life in and of itself can bring the contentment and the happiness and the fulfillment that a relationship with God can. That relationship becomes the frame for every other healthy relationship. It's about God. And so what we've seen so far in really looking at verse six, verses 1 to 6 in its context is a people that are posed with a question through their mediator, a dangerous question, and that is, what if you could just go on, and I'll send an angel, but I'm not gonna be, you're not going to be my special people, I'm not going to be with you. But you go on to that better place instead of staying here in the dry desert. Dry as dust and not enough water. And Moses, at this stage in the journey, says no. No, 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 no. And they pursue further repentance. They're stripped of things of value. Same kind of gold they used to make the golden calf in Exodus 32. They're mourning. There's evidence of repentance. And there's a flashback to actually meeting with God that's articulated in verses 7 through 11. So there's a danger in trying to go forward without God's presence, we've seen. And now we're going to see there is a delight in going forward with God's presence. And as we're framing this delight in going forward with God's presence, I wonder if you'll just look down at verse 7 with me afresh. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of what? The tent of meeting. The purpose was meeting with God. To put it simply, this is Christian maturity. It is seeing meeting with God as more important than a whole bunch of other stuff that we might be able to accumulate and get. Meeting with God is the main thing. And there's an entire theology of why it is outside the camp, of course, outside the camp. Hebrews 13 talks about what Christ did for us outside the camp and the value of Christ's death on the cross for us, and in many ways this foreshadows that for us, but simply put, the delight in God's presence is Christian maturity. That, that's what, when, when you see a, a sort of uh, desirability in Christians that have been walking the path for a while, what you're seeing is folks that have learned to place a high priority on meeting with God and less a priority on the stuff that God provides. And sometimes stuff comes with knowing God to be true. I mean, a rightly ordered life can lead you to be a better steward of things and whatnot. But, but again, the lesson of Job, not necessarily and not forever in this life, but forever in eternity. And so here is a man, an older man now, a wiser man named Moses, who is going to mediate for the people. But what we get here... First is a glimpse into his own knowing of God, as much as he knew God. And verses 7 through 11 talks about the visibility of Moses knowing God in that time. And I want to quote here now from the Baptist Confession. I think it's helpful. It shares about God and the Holy Trinity. Very simply, a sentence He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. So God is invisible, He has no body, parts, and change or changeable emotions so how is it we are to read a text like exodus 33 if it is true and i believe it is that god is invisible that god has no body that god has no parts god has no changeable emotions that's a question that we must answer well i think the answer is that the narrative itself has been accommodated by analogy to our humanity this is about god making himself known to us in terms that we can understand it's not about us catching God in his word saying something that doesn't make sense. I mean, you really can just give up on the project of the Bible being a reliable book if you think that Exodus 33, the author of Exodus 33, can't even get right between 12 verses. I mean, Moses sees God's face-to-face, and then anybody that sees God's face-to-face can't live. Well, which is it? Well, it's not talking about an actual face or a part or a body, really the word translated could be presence to presence instead of face to face. The idea is the closeness of God's presence, and Moses is getting closer than anybody else. We've seen that throughout, right? The burning bush, the manna from heaven, we've seen it with the defeat of the Amalekites, and we've seen it with the glory coming down from the cl- as a cloud on the mountain at Mount Sinai. And so this tent of meeting is an extension of Moses being closest to God, the presence of God, being known as a friend of God, face-to-face speaking metaphorically or by analogy of closeness to God. But you can't actually get all the way to God and live. That's not how this works. God is holy and we are not. God is eternal. God has always been. God always will be. And frankly, as we get closer and closer to God, what we find is that studying God is a more desirable project than just studying something about God for us, like ethics, behaviors, how we're supposed to do things. Differently, suddenly, the seminars about finances or marital intimacy or whatever the case may be, those things, as valuable as they can be, they're not eclipsing our energy for knowing about the Trinity, knowing about Christ's redemption accomplished and replied, knowing about the nature of who God is. Those things rise to a higher level because mature Christians, Christian maturity delights in God's very presence. And that's what's being shown to us here. When Moses is meeting with God in this tent of meeting and Joshua is guarding the entrance door to the tent and the people are understanding in their repentance and in their better judgment that this Moses isn't lost on the top of some mountain, or, in the entrance of some t- or inside of some tent. But that cloud is evidence that Moses is a friend of God's, and God, re- reverential in all, God is communicating, speaking true words to Moses. And furthermore, we benefit when we get those words grant- given to us by Moses or by the mediator. So, so, so just look at a couple of verses before we move on. Look at, at verse, uh, verse 10. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, the people would rise up, Almost like a respect for a courtroom, you know, all rise, everybody would rise up. And what would they do at their own tent door? They would worship. And then it says here, it's kind of a summary, the Lord used to speak to Moses, speak is the emphasis, face to face or presence to presence. As a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, in other words, when he turned back from that meeting place to go to the camp, ostensibly to work with the people, Joshua would make sure nobody went in. Joshua would guard the tent. Of course, Joshua have a major leadership role in God's people going forward after Moses dies. So, last thing or two about the second point the delight in God's presence. Sincere repentance is coming to faith. That's, that's sincere repentance is coming to faith. When we come to faith, we have sincere repentance. That is sort of baked into the cake of the transition from Exodus 32 to 33. These people that are here now are not the rebellious ones, representatively, that were killed by the Levites in Exodus 32 for their rebellion. These now are people that are broken and contrite and wondering, how is it that this holy God, this majestic God, this wonderful God, how can he be with us and not kill us because we're not holy? And at the same time, how can we go anywhere in this life without him? This is a conundrum. It's a major conundrum for me. And it's actually that, that conundrum for you is actually evidence of faith. It's not the lack thereof. So so sincere repentance and faith then brings you to the quandary of, how does God go on with me because I haven't gotten rid of all this sin yet? Like, What does that look like for me? And we can pose that question to ourselves as new covenant believers in Christ because it's a good question for us. How do we have God go with us when we're still sinful? And so if our second point caused us to expand in our hope for knowing God more and more in this life, even though Moses was still a sinner, he was growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if expanding in our knowing of God is the point of, 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 of point two, and if point one was about repenting and understanding I shouldn't go anywhere without God and I don't even know how He can be among us, then really step three is seeing your need in the midst of knowing God yourself for other people to know God. It's, it's seeing yourself as a prayer warrior for slow-to-grow members of the church, if you want to put it like that. It's, it's seeing, it's a, it's a majestic batch of verses we're going to review here at the end of this. It's a majestic batch of verses because what it's doing is it's moving you from your simple faith and your knowing God to a desire to intercede in prayer, to care for, to love people that also need to come along in their faith and want to know God more, and in fact, to know God more. So this, this step three is the desire for God's presence to be with all of his people, and not just a select through few people. So Moses and Joshua could have been quite concerned or narrowly concerned with a few people, but this, this drama analogously conveys God's friendship with Moses precisely because Moses, showing us more about God, has a heart for the many. And may God give us a big heart for the many, too. Look at Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know with whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And look at what he says at the end of verse 13. An interesting sentence. Consider too that this nation is your people. Again, we see this depth with Moses that we didn't see with Aaron in chapter 32. He's not, Moses is not strictly speaking blaming this stiff necked people. He is putting himself in solidarity with these sinful people, corporately, to say, please don't forget these people. I want these frustrating people that have professed faith to go with us too. I wonder if you've thought of it that way. I mean, I loosely quoted from, or I quoted from, and I loosely referenced 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14 a few moments ago in this sermon. And having preached through the entire book of 1 Corinthians and considered it as a book about the doctrine of the church, about God's people, what I think I understand from those passages is that God uses His church and the, the, the means of grace in our corporate worship, our time together, our lives together, and the giftings of the people He's gifted you, He uses His church to help all the people get to glory, to help everybody get there in the church, all the true believers to get there. And you know, something that's been impressed upon me lately is just how quickly we give up on that project, me included. How quickly we give up on that project. We get frustrated with people and we just write them off. Instead of getting gritty in the lives of people and getting to know them more and putting some stock in the fact that they had a credible profession of faith at one time, in order to follow the Lord in baptism, in order to become a member of the church, there was a lot going on there. And so let's assume there's still a lot going on there, and let's go work with that person, try for that person. We're just very, very quickly to just... And while I heartily believe in church discipline, because not to would be to deny the Bible, I also believe in church member long-suffering. I mean, we can get to some pretty low places as Christians, can't we? And do we really want to join the chorus of Satan and being the accuser of the brethren incessantly? Because of some need inside of us, some insecurity in us, some issue where we can't believe the grace of God could extend to that brother or that sister that's in that place? No, it can. And it does. Often, it does and we have to catch a vision for the many getting all the way home. I can't imagine Moses having a real desire to pray for these people. I mean, just read the Pentateuch on balance for how they treated him. They thought he was dead. They wanted to replace him. They didn't want to follow him. He has sibling rivalry at one point with his own brother. I mean, I can't imagine a people with this kind of a stiff neck that have done or will do these sorts of things, I can't imagine that he would want to put himself in place of them. He would say, as he said in chapter 32, Lord, I'd rather it be me that doesn't inherit you than them. I don't even know, like, what is that? How do you get there but for the grace of God? And that's actually what I think it is. I think that very sentiment, that very attitude is grace. It's not just the preaching of grace or the identifying of those who profess to have received grace. The attitude to care about getting the saints all the way home is grace. Look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 14. The Lord said, my presence will in fact go with you and I will give you rest. Kind of sounds like, come unto me all ye who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. It says in verse 15, if your presence won't go with me, Moses says, don't move us from here. Keep us in this place. Keep us in this dry place. Verse 16, how shall it be known missionally that we found favor in your sight if you don't go with us? That's what makes us distinct is your presence. We're not going to be identified as your people if you don't go with us. So missions, the mission's identity is baked into this, this here. And I think Moses has a sense of that, and at least it seems, in how he's arguing for the Lord to go with them. And we're getting into this dialogue for purposes of our own sanctification. So then verse 17 says, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. The Lord says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go with you. Why? Because you found favor in my sight, or I've shown you grace or favor. Same kind of word, favor, grace. And I know you by name. And of course, the Lord knows all of his people by name, for your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. He knows your name. Verse 18 says, Moses said, please show me your glory. I mean, what a statement. I mean, I almost think that the text should have just ended, right, after verse 17. And and it's like Moses just wants more. He just wants more. He just wants more. You know, it's not greedy in a sinful sense for you seasoned saints to want to know God more. But maybe memorize those four words. Show me your glory. You know what glory is? Glory is a manifestation of God's presence. Wherever God is, glory goes. That's why Isaiah 6.8 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His holiness. It's not what it says. The earth is filled with His glory. I don't need to ask to see God's holiness. His holiness is certainly there. It is. Because He is. Show me your glory. I want to know you more. Knowing God. That's the project. Not getting stuff. I used to work for a watermelon farmer. And there was an art to stacking watermelons. You had to put... The the oblong ones, kind of on the outside, you had to stack them a certain way, and then you wanted to make sure as you built that kind of pyramid up on the trailer, you would you would put certain sized ones in certain places, and you would put the smaller ones up to the top because if you had them on the bottom, you know you had to have the base layer. And there's this whole thing, kind of like stacking hay, which I did that too, stacking things, right? And I remember talking about that phenomenon. I remember a guy saying to me once something about rocks. You've probably heard this one somewhere along the way. If you put that big rock in there first, and then the medium-sized rocks, and the smaller rocks, and the sand will fit, and you can fit a whole lot more in that container. But if you go to put the sand in, and then the little rocks, and the medium rocks, and you try to fit that big rock in last, what happens? That big rock just kind of sticks out the top, and it never does go in there. You've probably all heard that, or many of you have heard that. If not, now you have, and we're all on the same page. Now, it is a really kind of low-level way of looking at this conversation, but nevertheless, sometimes I need to put... Pretty plain and straight. God has to go into that container of life first. And then the other things that are needed can fit where they're supposed to fit. But if you incessantly try to go where you're going to go without God, it's not going to fulfill it. If you incessantly try to live your life with God as a as a as a cherry on top, as something extra, God does not, He's jealous for you, chapter 34 is going to say. He he does not play on those terms. You're not going to be satisfied. And that's what Exodus 33 is. It's kind of a clarion call to look to those that have gone before us and those among us that are more mature than us and to say there's something to God being the center of that person's life. It's more important than stuff. You've heard it said, you cannot serve both God and money. You'll hate the one and love the other. You can't serve God and what money can provide, the stuff. You'll hate the one and love the other. It's an either-or proposition. God has to be the center. And again and again, that's why we repent every Sunday. It's why we confess our sins. It's because we are prone to wander. And we need to be reminded again and again. But seek ye first God and His kingdom. And all these things, those will be added unto you in the measure they're supposed to be. Matthew six 33, they'll be added. The desire of God's presence to be with His people, and not just a few, but all of God's people, is what Moses is showing us James Boyce, quoting Arthur Pink, said, Here we see a bold type of mediator prevailing in intercession for a sinful people. Not only in averring the wrath of God, which we see him do in chapter 32, but in securing God's continued presence in their midst. The negative and the positive aspect of saving work. We must be forgiven But as a continually sinful people, we need a solution to have God's abiding presence. So Moses is the mediator of the Mosaic Covenant, and he understands the project of God, and so far as he understands it, is to reestablish the fellowship, the presence and knowing of God that was lost in the Garden of Eden. That's That's the project of the tabernacle, which of course will be lost again. And so where does all of this go? The need for God's presence with His people. Well, it goes all the way to Christ now, doesn't it? God's name, the Lord, is how the incarnate Lord God Himself will be known, as in the Gospel of John, the I Am, who is the bread of life, the door to the tent tabernacle of heaven, the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father, but by me, He says. He is the I Am, Jesus is God, and His justice will be served in the due time. From Exodus 33 time standpoint, His justice will be served on the cross, and He will show mercy upon mercy to many more than just a few. He'll bring many sons to glory, and in Paul's letter to Romans in chapter 9, he quotes Exodus thirty-three, nineteen, 19 to demonstrate God's definition of benevolence in showing mercy to his redeemed people. It is true that not all will be saved, but many will, and that's grace. Look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 19b. You don't have to turn to Romans to see it. Just take my word. It's quoted in Romans chapter 9 to make a point about how gracious God is to save his people. It says, you'll proclaim my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. My, my, my. If you know the Lord, you've been shown mercy. You haven't gotten what you deserve. If you know the Lord, you've been shown grace. You've gotten a gift of eternity that you don't deserve. Sin's wiped away, and a manner for fellowship to be had not only now, but into eternity has been had because of Christ. Not because of Moses. We needed a prophet like Moses that was better than Moses. One who had never sinned and yet would become sin for us. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the reality is that all, all the good Moses could do for those people was be faithful in his generation to point them to God, who in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4 said, would make himself known. He would be born born of a woman, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born that we might believe, and by believing, have life through the Son. And consider that that Son still shines on us this very day, all of us who believe. And that Lord continues to intercede on our behalf in a way Moses only hoped to. Let me remind you, of how he prays for you, Hebrews seven twenty five. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them for us. Far from an old thing, a better mediator than Moses is interceding for you now, and God Himself is interceding for you. If you feel weak in your conscience, you feel weak in your bones, you feel weak in your resolve, and you need help, hear how Romans puts it on this very score. Romans 8, 26-34 says, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And verse 28 of Romans 8, And we know that for those who love God, do you love God? Those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he called and those whom he called he justified and those who he justified he also glorified you see that god getting you all the way home look at verse 31 what then shall we say to these things if god is against us who can be for us is that how it reads not at all It's about God being for us. It's not about what He gives us all the time. It's about Him being for us and and more readily with us, His presence, His abiding presence which is accomplished in Christ. If God be for us, who can be against us? That's what it means to pursue knowing God, is we live with this ironclad promise by faith that God's for us, and so nothing else, no one else being against us, can really matter into eternity. If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is doing what? Actively, he's interceding for us right now. Thank you, Moses, but thank you, Jesus, even more. Thank you, Moses, but thank you, Jesus, even more. All the happiness in the world would leave you miserable. But if God be for you, who could be against you? All the troubles in the world would leave you hopeful. If God be for you, who could be against you? I wonder if you've come to terms with God being for you. If you haven't, I hope you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ this very day. Young person, hear me. What riches you've been given to hear this gospel now. There are parts of the world that haven't heard of the fame of our Lord and the distinctness of His people. And you'll not stand unjudged on the day of the Lord if you rebuff that offer to salvation. Come to Christ now. Receive Him now. Step in the light of His presence now. Older person, come to faith now. Busy and middle-aged person, come to faith now. You don't have time for it, you don't have time to not have God with you and for you and by your side. Life will never be complete, you will never be content, you'll never be satisfied, and you won't be happy until Christ is at the center of your orbit as He is at the center of of all the orbit, sustaining all that is and will be. It's all working together for good for those who God knows, those that seek to know God, for those that stand to see a beautiful vision on their last day, the day when they'll see the one that they seek, the day in heaven when we'll see our Lord. Let us take a few moments to consider silently our prayers and then to pray together.